inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Good day and welcome to another episode of Outlook, first show of December. How are you doing there, Carrie? Doing pretty good. Hanging in, getting down yeah, to, the, to the wire here this this year and Christmas is coming before we know it, so. Right. But today, you know what else today is? Uh, we are like, we are up front with our listeners and right now we are working from home and we always record uh, usually the Thursday before. And so I wanted to mention that today because today, December 3rd, is uh, International Day for Persons with Disabilities. So I thought I should mention that even though it'll be Monday when this airs and I will still celebrate that. And uh, so on our guests on our show today to celebrate that, I, I'm glad to have uh, quite a famous, famous personality in some circles anyways, in ours, right, Brett? Yeah, and another local guest as well. We've had a couple from London mm-hmm. recently, so it's nice to have another um, guest in the from the area instead of. It's always nice to have people from around the world too. But uh, yeah, it's it's great to have someone from the hometown here where I am. And so, with that, we'd li- I'd like to introduce our guest today on Outlook, Kelly McDonald. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey guys, I love the famous part. Boy, that'll make the head swell. <laughs> but it's we, wonderful to be on board hi to the listeners yeah thanks we we occasionally do say that about a few people in canada we said it about we said it about tom decker recently a truly um, famous guy yeah yeah absolutely for sure so um but yeah you in your own right uh so thank kelly um so you're 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 used to this being on the radio and and all these things but you were just saying you're not maybe not as much as it uh, as the interview interviewee I um, have started to recognize that I think I do okay hosting and interviewing, but as a guest, I'm a little lousy. So I tend not to shut up when I, I've got to try to gauge things better and say, okay, that's enough there. Stop. And, you know, stop getting on some kinds of tangents. Uh, I think uh, the the key, obviously, at both ends is, is listening, gathering, and then responding and sometimes learning how to economize words. That's right. Yeah, that's our challenge. <laughs> it's fun, though, <laughs> when you have the time to fill. I think you get trapped sometimes. As a, I know as a host, you get trapped sometimes filling, especially if you get a guest on. Hi, how are you? Fine. Okay. Yep. And, you know, I may have to do a little more uh, prodding and pushing and getting the person to talk. Sometimes you, you, you obviously want to be respectful for the person, but you're in your head you're just saying, oh, could you give me more than, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah some people get really nervous i think yeah they do yeah it's the thing we're learning now is starting to have more guests especially since the pandemic being from home there's been more people at home and it's been easier to get guests not doing it live so we can work around other people's schedules so we've been getting used to having more and more guests lately and it, it really does depend i mean it's it's important it has to do with the hosts as well but the the guests also have to be a certain way and you got to work with it no matter what so 
Well, I'm kind of curious how you guys feel when you're, I mean, you guys would do the show from in studio. Did you find that really hard not to be in the same space as each other when, when everything started with the pandemic? I don't know. Yeah, Kara, I was going to say, you, you might want to speak on that because I remember you, you commented a few times. It's, it's always a little awkward to balance a show with two, two hosts and uh, we'll get into Kelly's show, uh, Kelly and Company that is on AMI every day. Accessible Media Incorporated every after- afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, but I guess the thing is always trying to balance so you're not talking over each other and this and that. And I remember, Carrie, when this began, you kind of said it is a little weird not being in the same room as far as sort of the timing of our our, our uh, delivery and, and interacting with each other. I think we've gotten used to it. It's been, what, eight, nine months now. So um, Yeah, yeah I, think, I think maybe it... You feel, maybe you feel a connection with somebody when you feel their energy or something when you're in the room with them and you're able to maybe vibe with that a bit better in some circumstances. I don't know. I know we have um, some people that work with us. One of our particular backup co-hosts for the show is very used to being in the space and uses her eyes a lot for the body language between us, our technician. It becomes something that she really is looking forward to getting back into the studio, uh, whatever decade that happens. Um, it's just one of those things that for me, well, I can't really enjoy, especially you slap headsets on my head now. And my vision is pretty well decreased to nothing or decreased. Yeah. Decreased to nothing. So I thought I had to switch my words around. Uh, so I don't really notice it. I could, it feels the same here working from home, uh, or in the studio. And I've been working from home even before the pandemic. So I, I liked it, but I was in that stage of, well, we've got to make this work because I don't really want to be going back into Toronto all the time doing the show. I enjoy coming in once in a while uh, to, to host from there, but really started to love as a London boy, as Brian was saying, I really for years had to run back and forth to Toronto to work. Um, and we can get into that in a little bit, but um, you know, when I had to run back and forth, I missed my London and I, tell people in London, oh, I miss being here. What? Why? You know, <laughs> because this is my home. Everywhere I went, I went to the blind school in Brantford. So eight years gone there. Uh, then working in Toronto and before I started to come home to work, it was 16 years of doing that back and forth. So it feels like 24 years. It is. That's the math. I'm not bad at it. Uh, that I was really away from home and having to always run back and forth. So I, I totally appreciate it. I love it. And when anyone would say, oh, I really miss you being in the studio, I'd say, shh, I'm so loud. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. I mean, it's I do feel like even not being able to see that there is a certain energy or something just being in the same room as yes. a guest that I, I do like. But at the same time, I mean, I think you, you, you trade that for the convenience of doing it from home. And it once you do get used to it, you don't really think about it that much. And, and, and in other ways, you can, you know, get more guests this way instead of having to book them in studio. And there is there's advantages to both, I think. And uh, it just depends on the situation. Well, so. I've been at AMI for years, so for me, the novelty of, oh my goodness, I get to go in and play radio or play TV when I was doing the TV stuff, it, it, it's worn off. So people would say, well, don't you miss? And I had to be navigate that carefully because I didn't want to say, absolutely not. You, you don't miss <laughs> yeah. any of us? Oh, no, it's not that, guys. It, it's yeah. the whole traveling. The, the And I didn't realize till I was working from home how much of a toll that going back and forth, running around, um, takes on a person. That being said, there are things I miss, and 
the privilege of being able to do it and have the, have the fun and, and basically for me a lifetime dream of being in broadcasting and doing what I wanted to do since I was about nine years old coming true um, and and that I, I would never want anyone to think listen don't complain about that a little bit of traveling forget it I, for what I get to enjoy and have enjoyed uh, it's definitely a privilege yeah I mean for me it's it's the thing of a for for us, I guess we've only been doing the show for just over two years now, and I've been doing my music show for three years. So I guess I hadn't been in it long enough where I was like, I I don't, you know, I wanted to get away from going in the studio, or I was okay from. I I do miss it to to a degree because I didn't really have that many years there before this all happened. But at the same yeah. time, I am a I'm definitely a home a homebody kind of person. So. I also I also don't miss the traveling in other ways, so it just it just depends. But uh, but you said you were um, London born, London boy, um, like Brian said, local guest here. Um, so tell us a bit about where you grew up, what your sort of early life was like, sort of before and W W Ross. Well, I actually was born in Montreal. We moved here when I was six, oh, uh, okay. five or six, six, six years old. My dad worked for Robin Hood Multi Food back then, and got like we, he got transferred. Uh, his position was being ended, and basically threw a dart at the map of places that they said you could go here, here, here. We came to London. Uh, I, you know, really enjoyed being in London. Started elementary school here, and then I was slow. Um, when it came to my reading, particularly. So the suggestion was made he would probably benefit from being in Brantford at W. Ross. Now, W. Ross, uh, what, basically an hour from London. So I would go on Sunday and come back on Fridays. I, I know you guys know the, the drill of that. And, uh, or, you know, the commuting to, to, to where it is and placement and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I lived in the west end of London, an area called Byron. So I, I really loved Byron. I could ride my bike around safely. I had enough usable vision then that reasonably safely. Uh, <laughs> to think about it now, no, it certainly wasn't enough vision. <laughs> but, you know, we didn't know any better than yeah. that. Uh, you do all the things you like to do and, and along with all the other kids. So it was a struggle when they suggested, hey, man, we want you to go to W. Ross. And I had first talked about going to the Montreal School for the Blind with my parents just before we moved from Montreal. And I remember the day they brought it up and the panic that went through me. No. And and that was right in Montreal. Like I didn't even have the concept that, well, you go somewhere and you stay overnight through the week and then you come home. So you only see your family two days a week. I didn't even get that. I just didn't want to be taken out of the school I was in and, and go somewhere else. So when W. Ross came to be, um, and went on that first tour, and my parents were so blown away by, oh my gosh, how big this place! There's a swimming pool. Look at the size of the gym. This dining room is like bigger than four restaurants. It really sold them on the place, but mostly the educational factor. Me learning Braille when it came time to learn it to help speed things up. Totally different time than now and what we needed. So I was. I started to love it. I love the opportunities of doing sports and things like that, but have always been very close to the family, uh, my immediate family that way. And it was, I found that the most difficult. And I found being away from home, even to do work nowadays, difficult. And did you have any siblings or was it just you? Uh, I have uh, five siblings. Uh, okay. A couple have passed <laughs> now um, mm-hmm. due to health stuff that's, that's gone on. Uh, my oldest mm. uh, brothers and, um, in London here, there is four of us all together. So that really is nice too. We're not really, really close. I think, and this is something that I found very funny. And I remember my father and I having this conversation about 
how close I was to people, friends. All of us, my siblings and I, tend to be really close to friends more than each other. And we're, we're, my dad, it really, I remember it troubling him. And I explained to him when I was uh, at the blind school, well, these folks you live with, you go through all sorts of stuff. We're all there through all sorts of things, such as puberty and whatever. Uh, we make fun of each other. We know when someone's made a mistake or embarrassed themselves and it spreads through like wildfire. But we also know the cool things and we come to each other's rescue. I said, those people end up being more like siblings than your siblings. Well, I guess it would have been a little different for you, too. I mean, when you were even younger, maybe not. But once you went to uh, W. Ross in Brantford, I mean, you were gone most of the time, especially well during yeah. the weeks anyway. So you weren't really you weren't going home every night to to your brothers and sisters or so. No, so and I was the baby. So most of those guys, even when I was at W. Ross, most of my siblings were really actually out of the house. Right. Oh, okay. OK, yeah. So I was thinking maybe if you can go back just a little bit further. So were you were you um, born blind, and what uh, what was your diagnosis? When I when my parents first found me uh, sun gazing on the balcony and wondering why is he doing that, took me to the doctors. They said I had retinitis pigmentosa when they ran all the tests and everything like that. So that for most of my life, early life, was what I knew. Uh, I didn't find out about Lieber's congenital, which is actually what I have, which is part of the RP family, um, till the genetic testing I did at the Children's Hospital in Toronto in the last, when the heck, I want to say I've really only known this for eight years at most. Um, so we knew that others in the family, their vision behaved differently. They were RP people as well. But most of them had their good, usable, even driving amount of vision up until they were 19, 24, 25 years old. Then they had to give things up as their eyesight deteriorated. Mine, I was low vision from the very beginning and really only started to lose that low vision in the last five, six years to where now I'm basically down to uh, more than light perception, but not much. So it was kind of one of those things that Oh, I didn't want to wear glasses. No one wanted to force me to wear them enough. So I probably did harm to my eyes, to the rods and cones, which are very susceptible with the Libras and RP, uh, than I, I probably could. I probably could still have a little more usable vision now. Um, I was very lucky that I, I was good at mobility, that I had Braille, that I had the opportunity to use the computer and experience stuff because I can tell you, as my vision goes now, there's so many of those things I would not want to have to be relearning. Um, I think that yeah. cooking and mobility are the most important things because cooking, you can do it at home or you can go out and the mobility helps you go out to go for a walk. Unfortunately, too many of us are unemployed in our community. So you need something to do. You need to be self-sufficient. But even if it's just to say, I'm tired of these four walls, I'm going out. You at least yeah. can find your way around, feel safe doing it as much as you can in your neighborhood and your situation. Um, and you can at least say, I'm going to stay home and I've ordered this and I'm going to make something nice and maybe even eat healthier than having to resort to ordering uh, some of the, the stuff in that, that we should be staying away from. Wow. Yeah. No, Brian and I know about uh, Liebers. That's our condition also. So. Yeah. Uh, it, it's funny because I know a bunch of people, um, Roger Curry, who's on, on, the, on, on this mm -hmm. channel as well. Yeah. Roger, I know uh, at one point we had a conversation about his vision and... I know that that whole genetic testing thing discovered a lot of people with Liebers versus just RP. Right. And it really is funny for many of us to 
switch our mind around. My co-host Ramya on Kelly and Company, she as well has has levers, and it's it's so strange. Wow. Like I start and say, well, hold on now, what are we doing? Changing all the RP people to yeah, does <laughs> everyone have levers course. now? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> we just it's the new buzz. Um, and I know that's not it. I guess it was just amazing misdiagnosis or not having that knowledge of no, this is one thing different than what what we're calling this. So uh, again, nice to know for whatever whatever it means. But you, I found through my life, I got a lot into people say, "Hey, is there anything they can do? Is there any treatments, anything at all?" And I found that I never knew a lot about that. I, no, no, there isn't, and left it just at that. So even when it came down to getting genetic genetically tested, I was hesitant. And well, I don't know why would I bother at this point. And I'm glad that I did at least just to have that knowledge for whatever might come down the way, because you always get asked that question. If they found a treatment or some way, would you go for it? And uh, yeah, I think it depending because I have so little vision now. If there was something that could give me even back what I had. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, those are the answers that are so interesting when you ask people that question. And we, we, um, we do like to talk about that a lot. Um, because I, I sort of struggle with it even a little more than Brian. Cause, um, I think Kelly, you and I have had the same sort of journey as far as vision. I was low vision when I was young and now I'm like you said, more than light perception, but not much. Yeah. Um, not much. Would you, if they said that there was this, do you know the percentage you would take if you 40, <laughs> if there was a chance of it taking it totally away? I feel that mine. And, and I would miss because people will say, well, you can barely see now. Would you really miss it? Well, uh, actually, um, yes, <laughs> I, I really would. I, I mean, yes, I struggle and say, is the light on in this room? I'll look up at the ceiling and then looking for it because sometimes my eyes do funny things. I can't tell. But do you have a percentage that you would say, yeah, I'm willing to take that chance? No, I mean, I, I embarrassedly to admit I don't know enough. I wish I knew more about genetic not genetics but like the genetics around levers and um and the different treatments that do come out because like we talk on outlook all the time we don't like to focus on that stuff so no, I, I wouldn't no. want that to become the you know i wouldn't have wanted that to be my early life and i wouldn't want it to be what i take my time up with now it would have to depend on you know what kind of treatment it was and how it actually worked and you know all those sort of questions but i i kind of you know I think it would be hard to resist, but I, w I really wish we could be in that situation just so we could be too. test ourselves and find out what we would do. Well, and like you say, you don't want to be consumed by it. But no. uh, on the other hand, if somebody walked in and knocked on the door and said, hey, this is what I can do for you. We can do this, this and that, and the minimal, this upper chance. With my vision where it is now, I know if I had more or what I used to, I'd say, uh, no, I'm, I'm quite fine. I'll watch a few other people go through it first and we'll, we'll wait till you get it better. Now, I, I'm not sure. So it is that, and again, I don't consume myself thinking about it because even if that's going to happen with everything they're doing, it still seems many moons away and uh, not sure I'll be around still. Yeah, and this is yeah. something that we do we do talk about on this show quite a bit and it, it's, it's definitely different for me because I was born um, with with very low vision, just light, light perception, I guess you would call it, that was it. And it hasn't changed since I was born. So, you know, I... Again, it's one of those things. It's hard to know unless you're in the situation, but even less than 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 both of you, it seems like I don't 
it's not that I wouldn't take it, but it's I've never had it, so it's not really something yes. I think about. At the same time, the little bit of light perception that I even have, I feel like I don't want to lose that because mm-hmm. it is still nice to be able to see the sun, and when you're walking, I can see a bit of a shadow where the grass is and stuff like that. So, so even that little bit. So then that does make me realize that yeah, if you've had more than that, then if it's gone, that it would be something you would be a little more open to. Whereas for me, I'm not. It's always been this way, so I don't really care that much about getting it but yeah if the situation I got asked is there who knows well i got asked about the argus too the the bionic eye thing a friend of mine who was getting that procedure asked me she said they're looking for people you should sign up and at that point which was six years ago i there's just no way i was ready to take the chance of losing the little bit i had and what about color did you was were you able to see color no like, never n- never were okay no i used to, i just guess and people say i thought you said you're colorblind i just guess by shades and stuff like that i i had no idea um and i remember actually watching schindler's list once with my father when it first came out and oh. i said to him because they shot that in black and white and right. he said well this is interesting and i said what well they've shot this in black and white i guess to give you an idea of the time i said really and he said yeah i said but that doesn't look like black and white from like the 1960s and 50s shows that I've seen. That looks mm-hmm. different. It was, I said, I couldn't tell that it looks to me like the way I see. I said to him, that that's the black and white I see. I have no idea if he was actually seeing it the same way. But I couldn't right. tell one or the other where, you know, when I watched a black and white TV show from the 60s and 50s, I could say, oh, this isn't black and white. This isn't in color because there was no shades. Not mm-hmm. enough of them. Um, isn't there a scene in that movie, from what I can recall, where there's a little girl in like a red jacket? It's supposed that, to be like the, 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 the darkness, like a, black wow. and white to the red. Oh, I'm, really? See, that I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I haven't seen it for a while. I don't remember. Uh, oh. and, and I don't know if I would have noticed that. Like, everything to me, it looked like color to me. Or what, I, like, if you had asked me, is this movie in color or black and white? I would have shook my head and said, what are you talking about? It's in color. Because hmm. it was what I perceived as a color show. It was the same textures and everything on the screen that, and, and, and to me that was color, not black and white. So I was absolutely shocked. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, color is one of those, so it's one of those things. It's a big question. People ask, would you want your vision back? But it's also like people want to know what exactly you see. And, yes. and really it is hard to describe. I mean, as much as I'm a writer and I try, uh, it's really hard to make. And, and like you said, nobody, two people with the same condition and they say they sort of see the same way, but they don't, and they don't mm-hmm. see, perceive things the same way, their brain and all those things that are involved. And you can't prove anything. Like a person no. literally could fake being blind and nobody could say, well, the most of the doctors could say, well, we don't understand. There's no reason you shouldn't be able to see, but I can't, you know, yeah. you can't, it's, it's a bit different than other things with the human body that you can tell, well, that, but that should be working. You're, you are able to hear because this and that, uh, it, uh, sight is one of those kind of crazy things. And that's unfortunate. I know a lot of people, I don't think I've really been accused of it that I know of, but I know a lot of blind people or people who are losing mm-hmm. vision, they get accused of, of faking because people don't understand. And if, if they see one thing and then they see the person do another thing and that doesn't make, doesn't make sense to that person uh, in their mind, then they automatically believe like the, you know, the Stevie wonder yeah. Well, yeah. this rumor been going around forever, but um, I don't, yeah, it's hard to, hard to describe these things and uh 
I had a friend tell me when she lost vision, it was actually easier. The little bit that she had because people would count on her to guide other people who were low vision or blind. And family members would constantly be confused by the fact that last week she could run down a flight of stairs, turn the corner, and wouldn't trip over the, the, the bench that was jutting out a bit. But then mm-hmm. this week, because it was jutting out, same spot, she'd trip over it. And, mm-hmm. you know, people didn't understand that it doesn't work that way. Lighting, everything else. And it's, it's different for everyone. Yeah. So have you ever had that happen to you directly then? Um, I think people have counted on me. Uh, now I tell people I'm not really in, interested in guiding people. I find <laughs> that I zigzag too much, yeah. especially crossing streets. So I, and, and I've run more people into stuff when I've been guiding now. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I find that I'm not really wanting to do that. Whereas before I even, and I'd still run people. I, it's not like I had enough vision to not see little posts sticking up or an uneven sidewalk with no depth perception or anything like that. If, I think there was a confidence in, and when you start doing the bumping or you bumping yourself into stuff more, I mean, I was used to me hitting everything as, as we know, we bump things, you hear people coming towards you and you, you're heading at a post and you bang it and you can tell the people who are watching you do, you hear their, yeah. <gasps> you know, it's yeah. like they just saw someone decapitated right there on the street in front of them, uh, you, you know, and you chuckle or whatever, but that's our world getting up, bumping things, moving past. I remember somebody saying to me, Oh, your leather jacket. And say, what? Well, along the shoulders, like on the outside of your jacket, it's a little war. And it made me realize it's all the walls I brush past. All (laughs) the things I don't quite see, I would damage my coats that way. I would be ready to get a new one because I'd I'd rub my shoulders against stuff. Being a big guy, I'm I'm six foot and I'm a wide man. And, you know, I'd not even think twice about it. Yeah, I seem to always catch... A little corner of the wall or the door yeah. with my with my baby toe or my yes. yeah, like tip you know, the tip of my elbow or something terrible. Cut a corner too sharp, right? Yeah, and go around and thunk. <laughs> and yeah. we're so used to it. I, I think if you are asked each day, like at night now, account for everything you bumped into today. There's no way you could remember because it's so common for us. Yeah, and like you said, it isn't the oh my god when people see it, but I, no. I mean I know they see it and it it causes I think probably a, a physical <laughs> reaction physiologically like. And I think yeah. I know for me, when I first heard people do that, at first it was offensive. I was like, oh, knock it off. Shut up. Stop being overdramatic. Right. And you realize, yeah, but they don't do that. And when they do do it, it is shocking to them and upsetting a little more than watching you do it. It's a, they don't like it anymore than having themselves do it. But at first it's like, oh, stop making a drama because you don't want everyone called to attention. Why is that person breathing? In? <gasps> that blind person just bumped their shoulder on the wall as they run. Oh, my goodness. Well, as far as um, blind people guiding other blind people, I just have to say it is a confidence thing. It is a situational thing. And I have been guided um, through the streets of Toronto by some some pretty confident blind people. So, <laughs> Well, I used to be one in Toronto, particularly. Uh, now I'm not as, if I have to guide someone, definitely. I tend to use my cane and cover them more than I do myself because I don't <laughs> yeah. really want that responsibility. Yeah. Of, oh, yeah. Well, those two teeth you lost. <laughs> So you were telling us uh, that you went to W. Ross. Um, tell us a bit more about that. Like you said, the friendships you made and, and how you counted on each other. But what do you think, um, for you, it was a positive experience, you think? Uh, I know we have that debate a lot about, you know, integration. And I don't, you're not meaning to date you it's more than you have yourself. <laughs> but um, it often depends. Part of it often depends on when, when the, the person started school. There was sort of a switch around the 80s where more kids were becoming mainstream schooled, but um, like you said, you started out there and. It was the best of both worlds going to 
W. Ross and also do, you know, doing uh, mainstream school. I started in mainstream in kindergarten, grade one and two, uh, and then went to W. Ross basically for grade three through uh, 11, I think it was. Um, benefits, I could scholastically do better because I was able to use Braille um, but, and, and learn computer that helped me later on in life. Uh, in, in that sense, getting a step ahead. Uh, is the education process as strong as, how can I put it, uh, difficult if one wants to look at that? We had uh, the people who were uh, in a lower level of, of, of education, people who were general and people who were, quote, advanced, unquote, mm-hmm. um, when in high school, uh, that is. So they tried to, to take that into account. The things that I thought were really great was you had to really learn to get along, compromise that that stuff that later on we have to do, whether it's in a workplace, whether it's at school. The the sports stuff was essential. When I was in mainstream, couldn't do any of the sports stuff. Uh, when I went back to mainstream in grade 12, I could do a little bit. I remember the, the football coach at Saunders where I went, uh, Mr. Hell, he wanted me to play on the football team. And my yeah. dad was a big football guy. He coached in the London Minor Football Association. So it was one of those things. And I, I didn't end up doing it because I thought, oh, hey, man, I don't want to be a target once all of London at the other high schools. Hey, there's the play guy. Hit him. You know, all the guys who aren't really that good and are bored and don't want to get hit. There's somebody they can hit. And, and I was a big guy. And it was one of those things that I was very flattered. Um, because I had wrestled at W. Ross, and we wrestled against the other high schools. Um, I had learned karate. I, I, I was played gold ball. Um, I, I don't know how much you guys have talked about gold ball on the show. Uh, the sport devised. Not enough. Uh, not enough? Mm, gold ball. You are listening to Outlook here today on Radio Western. We're speaking with Kelly McDonald of Kelly & Company on AMI-audio. We're going to take a quick break for some promos, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Outlook on 94.9 Radio Western. And we today are talking with Kelly McDonald. Um, and we were, before the break, talking about his time at W. Ross School for the Blind in Brantford. You were telling us about sports in particular. And I, I kind of wonder about myself. I don't know if I was ever athletic, but I wonder if I would have been maybe more involved in, in a bit more of that sort of thing if I'd had gym and if I'd been at W. Ross, but uh, I really struggled with that sort of part. But you were telling us about goalball in particular, which we really haven't talked about. Goalball is a great sport. I always loved sports, but I was a marginal wrestler. Um, karate was great. We would did it really just to uh, have Added, that like, to self, learn, kind of. and it was fun because it was really more for self defense in case someone tried to yeah. you know, body on the street. We learned a lot about that, but for me, it was a lot of the fitness part of it. I like. Then we had intramural hockey and and baseball uh, and football. Goal ball was one of the things we did intramural, but I got to learn about it. And goal ball is a sport that uh, the I think it was the German um, after World War Two. A German, or even during, uh, for war-blinded individuals, uh, it was a sport created for these guys to be able to have something to do to be active. And you have uh, three people at one end of a floor uh, in a gymnasium, and three people at the other. Just imagine it as a a, a court, a little smaller than a basketball court, mm-hmm. and a, a ball with bells is tossed back and forth and stopped by the opposing center wing and, and two wingers that are on the uh, on each end of the floor. I loved goalball. Uh, played it for the provincial team a little bit. Never really got further. I ended up uh, backing out of it, which I'm kind of, that's one of the things that I'm most sorry that I did. I, I enjoyed it enough. I think it's a great sport. But at W. Ross, it gave me that chance to play uh, and, and train. 
uh, I felt that many of the people I know now who were mainstream, those were some of the things that they missed. And I do feel very much that that helped me out. Now that, that we, as we were talking earlier about the vision loss, I realized learning the computer, learning my original mobility and getting around and bus training and all that at W Ross, it was essential in where I am now when it comes to that. As my vision gets worse, I know I've watched so many of my friends who were sighted people who have lost their vision and it just the delay it puts on their lives for some of them uh, as they try to learn everything. I feel quite fortunate. And some would say, well, you could have learned that in mainstream. Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. If I was lucky enough to have someone at a CNIB who was good with mobility, if I had a family or siblings, maybe, and we went out and did sports or something, tossed the ball. But there was also a lot of people who tell me the stories. And, and I, I remembered it when I was, before I went to W. Ross, play, setting up the split up for teams and being picked last to be on a yeah. team because what am I going to do with the blind guy? Um, I was lucky. I had some friends when I was a kid. I had one particular friend, Rob, who who got me to do everything. I was mentioning bike riding earlier. To Rob, I was low vision, but there wasn't anything I couldn't do that he could do. And this guy was, he was like this. When I met him at eight years old, anything, if there was something we were going to do, he'd stop and say, hmm, how can wow. I fix this so Cal can do this? And I mean, from climbing trees to, in our backyard uh, where I live, we had the uh, ski hill here in London that's out uh -huh. in the West End, out in Byron. And at that time, different era, different time, we toboggan down it. They were really good about letting us do that. But my friends were really good at including me and stuff and not making me feel, as I would at different other times through life, as, as you do, kind of left out or, hmm, what are we going to do with you? Uh, I'm a big theater fan. I've, I've felt it, you know, doing things like that. Um, which is a, a funny thing, too, because as a big guy, I've also felt discrimination. Like a, I'm, a, I'm a black man, and I have le felt less discrimination being black than I have being blind or 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 a big guy. Mm. Um, so at W. Ross, I felt I learned a bunch of those things. Um, I had a very good family system, so cooking, all that was an issue. Going to Saunders was really nice to, to, to get in mainstream and used to people. One of the mm. biggest things I hated was feeling everybody was staring at me. I always thought, in my head, people are staring. And the worst thing when you think people are staring, we always go that way of, it's negative. They're waiting for me to trip, fall, make a fool of myself. When they're really watching, generally... Yeah, a lot doing? of times it's just curiosity or... <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It's the last thing they're trying to do is, you know, uh, uh, wait, just wait, what? Oh, he's blind. He's sooner or later going to trip and fall. They're not waiting for that. That's just not what's going on. But you worry. I'm. Everybody sees me. Everybody notices because I've got this cane in my hand or this dog. And you have to get through that. And it's, a, it's, it's stuff that I think probably, being honest, most people will say that they go through at some point in their life. Um, I felt being in grade 12 at Saunders helped a lot with that because once you get into college, you're really on your own. Everybody is. Yeah. You're expected to go from student to adult student. I find that really interesting. So, so you went to, to the public school originally, and then you went off to, to Brantford to W Ross, and then you ended up coming back to public school for, for high school at some point for the last couple yes, of years. And I had to be talked into it by others who were at W Ross and left really? and went to mainstream. And I had a birthday party one year where a few of friends were hanging out with me and they said, why don't you come to school with us at Saunders? Oh, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. I don't know. And by the end of the night, I had made my mind up. And uh, when I went back to the school, my parents called in and said, he's going to be leaving at the in June of this year and going to school there. Please get him ready. Oh. 
Yeah, that's amazing because I we've had a had a guest on recently, and that's something we always think about is the transition from if you've always went to well, I guess our pre- our previous guest Patrick did go to uh, public school originally for a little bit, but um, but if you go if you're at W Ross all the way through and then you go straight to college, that must be quite a transition. So the fact that you did go to Saunders first to me makes makes uh, a lot of sense. I think it helped. I think it helped, but it it is amazing. And, you know, we've talked about this on Kelly and company with people about suddenly going, regardless if you're disabled or able-bodied, you go into college and it's such a stark difference. We've been talking about the resources for people who are, you know, depressed or feeling upset, missing home, all these these, uh, areas that people need supports for. And you, you look at it and say, well, that's across the board, really. People are going there. They feel lonely. You know, maybe if they're in their home community, at least they can come home and get away from it or whatever. But if you can't, you it's like going to a W. Ross. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. You're right in a way because it is it is a new thing for everyone involved. So in in some ways, everyone is in the same boat, even though it's uh, it is uh, a little bit well, different. I- and I laugh because if you actually finish your high school and go right to college, you know, following summer, you finish in June and in September, you're starting at a college, you go from being treated as a student, a high school student, to suddenly in September, well, you're an adult now. Mm-hmm. Boom. Voila. And that comes with a lot of things that you say to people, aren't you being a little hard on these people that six months ago, they weren't expected to be so, quote, adult, unquote. And I'm not saying people aren't or that people shouldn't have expectations. I'm saying it's such a mind shift of, well, you're not showing up for class. You're not showing up for class. You fail. Whereas in high school, they're calling, where was Kelly today? Was he really sick? Is he all, you know, th- there's a lot more of that guidance and hands on and, and watching over. For sure. Support. Wow. Well, um, talking of college, what happened after W. Ross and all the, in your, in your school, um, elementary school, did you go to school for broadcasting? You said earlier that you loved it, you think, since you were I, young. Um, Nine. I don't I know if you actually, had a career idea before that. <laughs> I mean, that's I always wanted to. Yeah, I always wanted to do broadcasting. And in high school, I actually went and checked things out at Fanshawe and um, was actually quite discouraged. I actually ended up, when I left school, changing and thinking maybe I'd be a social worker. What happened is I was informed by someone in the program at Fanshawe at that time of how visual radio was. And it might not be a great place for a blind person to come and want to, you know, get into that field and so on. So I actually let that change the course that I had. I went to college uh, and uh, took a behavioral science course, which that told me you don't really want to be a social worker. Um, So I was kind of limbo, picked up a a couple of odd jobs for a couple of years and then applied anyway to radio. And it took me a couple of years. I got in. um, uh, I had a wonderful class that, that I was in with. I mean, we had some things that were kind of funny and in, in class with dealing with people, as you always do. That I'll save those stories for another time, um, <laughs> as going through the, the whole college thing. And some of the perceptions of how much easier or harder, how many breaks you're given or not based on your disability. So, uh, you know, and, and people not able to put themselves in your shoes anymore than I'm really able to put myself in their shoes. So some of those are, are interesting conversation pieces as well. So I spent two years at Fanshawe. Um, and at that time we did, uh, in first year, a lot of analog stuff. So working with tape and things that you wouldn't now, the second year was, was digital. They were phasing over to a fully digital, uh, lifestyle editing and running an automated system. Um, 
so that was very interesting. This was in the, uh, the 90s, I think, was it? Yeah, this was, uh, what did I do, 96 to 98. And at that time, doing the digital, there was absolutely no accessibility. Right. So knowing that I wasn't going to do production work, get out and try to get a job doing production work because it wasn't possible with the with the, the saw program or pro tools we were we were primarily using at fanto at the time i did a makeup project about this issue about for the whole year and and based on i went and audited the classes and learned stuff i just could not be marked on it so they found another way for me to be marked lo and behold i finish up start looking for on-air work more and more digital systems keep showing up, but mm -hmm. some of them were more accessible through hot um, hotkeys and stuff like that, that, that you could actually do stuff. Um, I did a little work for CJCS Radio in Stratford and then landed my job at AMI, funny enough, four years later, doing production work. Because <laughs> by then, there was uh, accessible software for us to do work. And at that time, we were basically a national reading service. So I was recording right. as a technician volunteers that were coming in. And um, so that's really how, how I first started out doing that stuff. But it kind of made me chuckle that, oh, no, no, it's not like I can get out of here and compete with these students if I if I can't do uh, production work. Ha, ha, ha. The most I could compete with is an on-air position. And first job I really get is doing tech work. Yeah, so it was frustrating and similar experience to me to, in some degrees where I looked into Fanshawe back in, in 2006 for the music industry arts. And then, yeah, they, they were using Pro Tools at that point and it wasn't accessible. And sure, at that by that point, there were other software that, softwares that were accessible on Windows and stuff. But uh, it did feel so discouraging. And, and the fact oh, is, yes. if, if everyone's saying like, oh, there's no way we can do this production, then no one's going to try and, and these things aren't going to develop. But the fact that I stuck with it and everyone stuck with it now I'm using Pro Tools right now, right? So it's one of those things that just takes time for things to be accessible. And if one thing isn't, there's always alternatives. And that's all about adapting. And, and like you talk about that makeup assignment where you still learned as much as you could, but you had to, you had to adapt and, and, and get marked differently. So it's all about finding alternatives and making the most of it. So uh, I, think that's, I think that's great. And it is great that blind people are in broadcasting and production and all of these fields because... They are doable for sure, especially in, oh, in 2020. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We 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 shouldn't feel all that we have to go into certain pigeonholed, whether it was the old days, what was it, piano tuning, and some people will say yeah. massages like that because it's the attitudes. You know, people accept well, massages all touch. Yeah, but there's certain parts of learning massage that are the anatomy stuff is a killer to learn in, in school, and people. You have to be a certain. You shouldn't have to be a certain personality to keep digging and fighting. Even though that is the way it is, and, and I know you guys spoke to Tom Decker about this kind of thing, and Thomas was that person that would get in there and really fight for stuff uh, when he wanted stuff. But I, I've always said to people, it's kind of strange that when we take a, a college course, particularly or a university course, we have to do all the research ahead of time, know the course so that we can teach the teachers to teach us. Yeah. That's totally true. Yeah, it's it's all about and it's it in some ways it's unfortunate that that's on us, but at the same time it's I mean it's it's also about finding other blind people and making connections and yeah. being able to relate experiences with other people that go through the same things, but yeah, it is uh and the more time more people that do it, the more that'll start happening, but it really we really do. We can't, you know, put the teacher on like, "Well, how am I going to do this?" You ha we have to be the people to say, "Oh, I know what I can do instead or I know what I could use to still accomplish the same the same tasks." So you bet cuz you're always going to run into the one prof that's excited that wants to take everything on and be that person that finds those ways you're always going to run into that prof that says well throws their hands in the air and i, I don't really know what to do with you and uh -huh. that's just not a fun thing to hear anyone say it's it's what a sinking feeling yes
Wow. So you mentioned AMI there. Um, how long before you got your show, Kelly and Company, before you, after you got the sort of working with them? Um, I was a technician for five years doing studio work. Then I became a coordinator working with the volunteers that were coming in, and we had started an internet project where they would come in, read uh, on different subjects, and we'd upload it to the net. And then I got asked when um, things changed over. I, I always refer to the gang as, you know, when, when the new regime came in and new ideas, fresh blood were, were thinking, we're going to make this a media company as opposed to a charity, which was at the time what, what we were um, doing great work. Um, but what can we do with this and, and still continue what we're doing and the mission of, of AMI? So at that time, I think that was around 20, uh, 2010. And I got asked if I was interested in doing TV work. And I said, well, I didn't go to school for TV. What do you mean? Well, we'd like to make you a reporter. Go out, cover stories and bring them back. And you guys cut them and we air them. Well, this was, I had no idea what this meant. I mean, the most I knew was watching the news at night on TV and, and figuring, okay, is it sort of like that? Well, these had to be longer pieces. Uh, they were used just to fill in at the ends of shows and stuff like that, where we would have, where uh, other channels would have commercials. Uh, we only really ran promos. So shows would end short. So there comes Kelly talking about this and that and being somewhere doing something. So I did that for a few years. Then we curtailed into uh, making our own shows and then out source programming so uh, i worked on a magazine show for ami tv uh, ami this week uh, and i had made in 2011 the complete transition so i was uh, the national reporter and then i became a toronto reporter um, and that's yeah. when got more involved with doing the entertainment uh, sorry the magazine show and then i got asked if i would pitch some show ideas and of which I pitched three. They loved one, but couldn't really figure out how to make it work, which was a game show kind of concept. Yeah. Uh, we had one that they accepted, which was had nothing to do with me, that was going out and covering conferences, accessibility conferences across the yeah. country, which I thought was lacking because being in Toronto, I mean, I got to go to everything. Sometimes yeah. in Montreal, Ottawa, we'd have a little bit here in London, but nothing really. But what about the people in far-flung places that don't get to? So that was kind of my my pitch with it and the idea that I had. So um, they did that for a few years. And I also then pitched um, a segment that we were doing for the magazine show called Blindsided, which was the idea of my uh, VP of production, really. Um, they asked me, could you come up with a concept for a half-hour show? Of which I did. Um, blindsided was a lot of fun to do. I had a lot of different experiences. Um, people asked me, did you love doing it? Well, I'm not a TV guy, so I don't want to say yeah. I loved it, but it gave me lots of opportunities. But we couldn't make up our mind with the show. So it ran three years. Every year looks very different as to... Um, the, the production company working with us to one year, one year I worked with a freelance producer and we basically shot the 13 episodes uh, with about three or four of us working on it. So it was a, a lot of work, but it was really a rewarding year. And the way the first year come off, I, I still feel one of the best years. Um, and I was very privileged to be able to do that. Primarily people would stop me on the street and say, Hey, Hey, you're the AMI guy. And would want to talk about the show. Why I bring this up before I, I get into the Kelly and Company thing and something you guys may find f quite fascinating was people said, oh, you, you loved it, right? People coming up and, hey, you're the TV dude, right? And I said, well, you know what I liked? And they said, what? I said, the fact that they wanted to talk about the show. And, and when they wanted to talk about the show or what I was doing, it wasn't because, you know, you're such an inspiration because you're blind. 
you get up and you do these things and you're not afraid. They wanted to know, so was it gross when you were in all that muck? When you were <laughs> flying the Harvard airplane, like, was that really, what was your favorite part? Uh, rolling the canopy back. Wow. It was, it was proof to me that the years of AMI-TV existing and what we were doing was making seeing low vision or disabled people in general on television in front normal. Yes. No longer a, come in here, Marianne, look at this TV. There's a blind person on the TV, and he's not wearing dark sunglasses either. It's, <laughs> look at that. It yeah. took away that surprise. People watching AMI, if they happen to watch it for a show they want to watch, were used to blind faces looking back at them. And that's the difference yeah. with, with radio where I do like to mention, even on my music show, I don't mention it that much just because I don't want to focus on it. But it's one of those things when you're on the radio, nobody would know if you're blind or not. That's it. Um, yes. so, so that's great in a, in a lot of ways. But at the same time, the TV is nice because it does show people that you're blind and then it does normalize it more. So I think being on the radio it is important to talk about it so people are aware that... Yeah, and our activities, which brings me good point, Ryan, because that was what we found through research when I got the opportunity to leave TV and start doing Kelly and Company. We learned through the marketing team that people wanted to know who was blind, who wasn't. Um, and it was something that, you know, we thought, well, you know, when it comes up, we mentioned it. And for us, due to the nature of the show, our show focuses on entertainment, uh, lifestyle, stuff like that. We talk sports, whatever. We're very lucky to be able to have such a wide gamut of things we can carry on about. And a lot of it is accessibility. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel. One of the things I said when we first started doing TV and when we started doing the live talk shows on AMI-audio, once it um, left being uh, primarily a reading service, was the people who watch Sportsnet don't have to have whenever a Blue Jay game comes on a, a half-hour tutorial run on what baseball is. So we don't feel we need to sit back and run a tutorial or every time we mention a screen reader. Now, a screen reader is. Right. It yeah. became part of our jargon, part of what normal discussions happen on our show. Right. And that's something, too, with this show we have to balance is we don't want to always be explaining everything all the time, but at the same point, no. we're, we're introducing this to a lot of sighted people who don't know about these things. So we do want to explain them in more detail sometimes as well. So it's uh... for sure. Well, like we just did with Gold Ball, right? If you guys haven't really covered that, and the same with us, we or we just assumed one of the things we got rid of was a lot of the acronyms, right? We know that yeah. if we're going to use acronyms, we've got to kind of define. I, I was on the London Accessibility Advisory Committee for a while, and I remember the first meeting I went to, everybody was using uh, acronyms. I'm like, uh, what's that? What's that? I had to yeah. sit next to people to then translate for me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah, so... Um... I've listened to a lot of Kelly and Company, and I've actually been lucky you, you and I, Bride, to be uh, on. Yeah, a couple um, times, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Had you guys on the round table, and uh, yeah, round I think table. We, when you guys first were really doing the show, uh, we were able to get you guys on to kind of promote, which, of course, we hope helps get people, what the heck, where are they, what are these guys? And yeah. to see now that you can find you guys via podcast and everything, which is awesome. Yeah, and again, uh, same thing. I don't know how many, I mean, I don't know how many, People in Canada know about AMI. I hope it re has reached more than, more than um, I th maybe think. Because, like you said, it's important, this media representation. Um, but now you're on the radio, specifically. Uh, tell us a bit about 
uh, Kelly and Company, and tell us a bit about your co-star or your co-host, whatever we call her. Oh, she's quite a co-star, I'll <laughs> tell you that. Um, it, when the show started, I had another co-host, uh, Sharon Caddy, who oh. is familiar to this area. Uh, she had been on uh, The Hawk at the time years ago uh, in <laughs> London area. <laughs> that's, that's um, and Caddy was on, and she actually started hosting with me on Kelly and Company. Then um, we, we got Ramya, who was a student, in Toronto that came to do co-oping uh, with AMI and ended up getting in the co-pilot seat. She produced as a student with us and learned all those aspects, directed the show. Uh, so she was directing behind from the control room um, the show, what we were doing. And we brought her in as a producer, a co-producer slash co-host. So we've been doing the show, her and I now, three and a half years, I guess, basically. Uh, the show is, uh, uh, in January, we will celebrate 1,000 episodes. I think around January 19th, one of the producers figured, did the math and wow. figured it out. Congrats. We cover, thank you, lifestyle, health, uh, entertainment, anything like that. We're very lucky that we, we are structured uh, where we probably interview six people a day on the show. Uh, most of them are contributors, such as Tom Decker was on Tuesdays when he would do, um, before he passed on, when Tom would, would host our uh, tech segment on, on Tuesdays. Uh, we know that the community loves technology, uh, so we're able to bring a lot of that forward, and as well as just some very interesting guests from talking about the upcoming weather this season to the best toys to get. We had uh, somebody from uh, Toys R Us on the other day. This 12-year-old lady uh, is a big toy tester for them, and she came on to talk about that Fun. with us. It was great. Um, so we're very, very blessed. We, I always say we show up at 2 o'clock for class and learn so much in the two hours. We have main contributors that are regulars and, as, as mentioned, some external people that come on. We are on the AMI audio service, which is a must-carry. So we are across the country and available uh, online as well. Kelly and Company is also available via podcast. We are also very privileged um, in the sense and very proud that AMI audio was what we used to say one of the best kept secrets in Canada, especially yes. when it was just a reading service. People didn't know about it and listenership was very low. We're very proud that listenership, whether it's our podcast uh, or the daily crowd that listens to the show, which averages between uh, two uh, 2,000 and uh, 2,500 people. Um, we we are very blessed to, to have that loyal audience that uh, checks out the program, and we get to have a lot of fun. Um, Ramya acts as, as co-host. She's a brilliant young lady who has gotten herself so involved in her community, gets involved in different stuff, is a beautiful singer, even though I tease her all the time that she generally does not sing on our show. Um, maybe for our Christmas special, she'll sing. Actually, I think she is going to sing something. Um, and I give her the gears a lot because she won't sing on our show, but she sang on other shows on the network. And uh, I, as I tell her, uh, I get butthurt over that. That's not right. Now, come on. Because <laughs> she has a beautiful singing voice. We both are interested in the arts. I, I'm very interested in uh, theatre. Um, and uh, ran in London, well, run in London, uh, a now dormant at the current time theater troupe called uh, Out of Sight Productions. Yeah, I was actually uh, just going to mention, mention that briefly. I know we're running, we're running low on time. We got about three minutes left here, but I was going to oh, mention correct. briefly Out of Sight Productions. And uh, <laughs> if you could quickly sum that up, as I, as I was imagining, it's it's on hold at the moment, probably. But uh, yeah, yeah, we had since I started Kelly and Company. To be honest, it kind of went into mothballs, and when we were about to fire things up, the pandemic came along. But our vision was to get low vision and blind people involved in uh, different uh, forms of of theater and working with sighted individuals, working alongside to create theatrical projects. And uh, we've been around since uh, two thousand and six. 
and really have uh, produced quite a few productions that uh, we've put in theater spaces around town. Um, but very lucky. But at this time, we're we're quite dormant and not sure what we're going to do and and when we will we will rise. Right now, with everything as it is. Wow. No, that's something that's definitely pushing my comfort zone. I really got to get involved in in that once the pandemic oh, eases up. Beautiful theater is amazing. It's play of let's pretend, but also just to do the things you want to do, and that's what I first learned when I got involved with it. Hey, you know, you could rent a theater. Hey, anyone can put a play on. Let's do it. Great. No, you're great. Great everything you're involved in and everything you've been doing. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And guys, thank you very much for the time to come on. And uh, when people have a chance, hopefully they can check out the podcast or Kelly and Company, the live show uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern, 5. We repeat midnight and 5 a.m. in the morning on AMI-audio. Yeah, so hey, I hope check your local listings. Yeah. I hope people yeah. will look up AMI because, like we said, it's not maybe it wasn't always well known, and I just kind of found out about it the last couple of years, really. So I think that's great, and uh, hopefully people listen and. Well, we're celebrating 30 years. Uh, as of December 1st, right. was 30 years for AMI. So that tells right. you how much of a secret for so long. Great. Well, Kelly, we'll have to have you back. Uh, appreciate it, guys. Would so love to. to and say. All. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.